I'm glad you're here. For those of you who don't know, yesterday we did our annual Easter egg hunt. We, uh, it's hard to count because people keep moving. I want everybody to get in one straight line. They won't do it. <clears throat> Estimate we had about 350 people, which was a pretty good turnout for an Easter egg hunt. So for everybody who worked and served and did so much yesterday to make it happen, thank you for everybody that donated candy and eggs. We really appreciate it. We're already talking. If you know me at all, I don't ever enjoy the event. I sit and think of everything we got to do better next time. And uh, somebody actually said yesterday, why don't you just enjoy the event? And I was like, this is how I enjoy the event. <laughs> we did 50 pounds of meat, 1,000 pancakes, more gallons of coffee than we could even keep track of. We know we went through two cans of our little ground-up coffee mix. So... For those of you who came out and ate pancakes or stuffed eggs or donated or were just a part and just were there to love our community, thank you. It matters and it makes a difference because we don't do it for us. We do it so that we can say, hey, you matter to us. And too many people in this world, nobody ever tells them that they matter. One of the reasons our world is so hurt and so broken is people don't know that they have value, that they're loved, that they that it matters that they exist. So I'm here to tell you today, it matters that you exist, and I'm glad that you are part of our community, part of our congregation. So um, today is Easter, in case you didn't know it. If you walked in here not realizing it, if you come here every week and didn't know it was Easter and just thought, boy, they really upped the decor this week, it's about time. (laughs) Yep, it is about time. Also, for those of you who have been pondering and wondering, our playground is officially done. I tested both slides. They are good to go. (laughs) You think I'm kidding. I told them no kids can go down until someone my size has gone down safely, and I did. (laughs) Somebody came and tried to tell me they were the first one down the slide, and I was like, no, you weren't. (laughs) I know some of you would like, why would you argue with a five-year-old? You have no idea what depths I'll go to. (laughs) So anyway, I also want to just thank everybody. Our playground was a over two years in the process of raising the funds. It's completely debt-free. It was two years in the process of raising the funds. We had somebody donate the time to install it, which if you didn't know, it cost about $4,000 to have one of those things installed. But we have a guy who donated the time. And somebody was like, why is it taking so long? And I was like, I'll give you 4,000 reasons why, because he's <laughs> donating his time. Um, but seriously, thank you to everybody who came out, helped us put the mats back in place, helped us with the parts that we were able to do um, and, and just, I love it when our community comes together to do something like this. I love it when we have a project because it means that we get behind it together and move forward together. So again, thank you for all of you who contributed financially and time-wise and every other way so that we have a brand new playground that's updated and modern and safe for our kids to play on. Now tell your kids not to get hurt. All right. This is our uh, final week of our series called The Cost of a King. And uh, the first week I talked about what you can expect when you get a king. And the problem is nobody really understands what the cost is going to be. We talked about how humanity does not really want self-rule. You may think you want independence and self-rule, but for the most part, we don't. It's easier when we have a list of rules and everybody follows the rules. If everybody just does what they want, and I'm the only one who occasionally gets to break them, that's even better. But if everybody else follows our societal rules, think how many times you get frustrated because somebody doesn't do something. It's not really even against the law. It's just like, 
but normal society. When you bump into someone, you say, excuse me. Have you ever thought that to yourself? Have you ever said that? There's no rule against it. There's no law, and yet we think it. Somebody the other day in the grocery store, I had one thing I was buying, so I go to the express line, and they had 23 items. I counted. I know you go, (laughs) how petty are you? I'm not estimating. I counted. I'm looking at the sign going, 15 or less. At first, I'm like, there's no way that's 15 or less. Am I really in the express line? I look again. I am. I start counting their items. You've got to be kidding me. I can go for 16, maybe 17 if you got like two bananas and they're rung up separately. But because there's no law against it, but we want rules. We want order. We want somebody who follows things and puts things there. And the problem is once you get that ruler, they always want a little more. They always take a little more. They always expect a little more. A king costs more than you expect. The expectations are greater than you expect, greater than you want, and they take the best of the best. But see, we serve a king who instead of taking the best of the best, he gives us everything he is, and his expectations on us are so low that we can't even live up to him. His expectations are so low that we don't even think we need to really follow them. We, we want to do what we want to do and make sure everybody else is following the rules. Make sure everybody else is doing exactly as they've been commanded to do, as they've been ordered to do, as they've been told to do. But that doesn't really apply to me. Luke 24, 1 through 12. Some of you are going, how is this an Easter message? We're getting there. Now, on the first day of the week, very early in the morning, They and certain other women with them came to the tomb, bringing the spices which they had prepared. I just want to give you a little history lesson in case you don't know this. When people would be buried in ancient times, and this wasn't just ancient times, this was still happening up to about 400 years ago, 500 years ago is about when this changed. The the tomb that they would be buried in was a temporary holding place. Okay? That wasn't uncommon there would be multiple bodies. Think of it more as a mausoleum that we might see today where there's several caskets in one thing. So it would be there, and then they would go, and they would cover the body with spices to kill out the stench. Remember, no embalming here. All right? So we use it to cover spices to kill out the stench because we're going to use this same tomb again and again and again as we have other family members and ancestors that die. They're going to also go in there. Okay, so multi-person are going to go in there. I don't know if you've ever seen one of those little mausoleum type things where they put multiple bodies, multiple caskets in. A few years back, it was quite a few years back now, it was probably 15, 16 years ago, uh, my great uncle died. And he was fairly well known and he was buried in a mausoleum and there were going to be a total of 10 people buried in this thing. And me being the curiosity person I am, I was a pallbearer, so we get there, we do the whole service at the gravesite, everybody leaves, and I can't stand it. There's an open, so I'm laying on the ground, looking, trying to figure out how, I see all the other caskets, they're all on, they lower them on rails and just slide them over into place. It's a really interesting thing when you're looking, going, wow, there's seven other bodies in here. My curiosity side so desperately wanted to hop down there and look inside those caskets. Now, I wasn't worried about smell, and I wasn't worried about covering up that smell. 
But that's not something that's new. So in their era, in their day, they're going to bury this body, and they go that first day of the week to cover it with spices, knowing that as it decomposes, it's going to start to smell. And so when they get there, this is where the story starts to get interesting. Because they're fully expecting the body to be there, and they knew that it was being guarded by Roman soldiers. But they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. It was supposed to be in place. Then they went in, and they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And it happened as they were greatly perplexed about this, that behold, two men stood by them in shining garments. Then as they were afraid and bowed their faces to the earth, they said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but he is risen. Remember how he spoke to you when he was still in Galilee, saying, The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and the third day rise again. And they remembered his words, and they returned from the tomb and told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, the mother of James, I'm sorry, Joanna, Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them, who told these things to the apostles. And their words seemed to them like idle tales, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, and stooping down, he saw the linen clothes lying by themselves, and he departed, marveling to himself at what had happened. When Jesus becomes king in your life, he never takes anything. He invites us to participate in the work and in the bounty of his kingdom. But Jesus doesn't take things from you. In order to truly become king, he willingly sacrificed himself and resurrected bodily. I've been in discussions and debates, or call them what you will, about people who, they deny even the existence of Jesus. And I'm like, well, you can deny the existence of anyone that existed before you. If you didn't see him, did George Washington really exist? I mean, maybe it's all an elaborate ruse that was started in a lab in 1940 when you were all created. I mean, I can't prove that he existed. I have seen a picture of Washington painting and I heard rumors of the false teeth and that really interested me and then I found out later that wasn't even true but did Washington so I mean you could do that with anything that existed before you we have historical evidence we have outside evidence we have the historian of Israel who Israel just so you know was no fan of uh, Jesus claiming to be Messiah but they did have a historian they've had a historian for over 3,000 years, as a people, they have peop- somebody who has written their history. And I don't just mean like went back and wrote their history. I mean at the time. The writings of Josephus were, um, referenced Jesus and who he was and what he was doing and what he claimed. So let's just say we can get to the point where we go, okay, well, Jesus existed. But how can we know that he was God? Okay, we have stories of the miracles that he performed. We have stories of his perfection. We have stories of his crucifixion. We have over 5,000 people at one point that see him post-resurrection. 
at what point is it enough evidence? And so if you just want to get in a debate over whether or not he existed or whether or not he's the son of God, then you're going to miss the whole point. See, the text speaks to us. The text tells us something. It tells us that women were the first ones to go to the tomb. Ironically, they're also the ones who stand by him at the crucifixion. On Friday night, we talked about what happens after the betrayal. They go, they have dinner together, he sits, he washes all the disciples' feet, including Jesus, including Judas. He looks at Judas and says, go and do what you have to do. Knowing that Judas is going to betray him, but also knowing that's what you got to do. And so Judas goes out, betrays him, he goes with other disciples, he prays in the garden, they come to arrest him. Within a few hours of him going to have dinner with them, he's crucified. And the disciples, there's only one that's there. The rest are gone. They've gone into hiding. They've gone back to their homes. They don't know what to do. So the women, they come and they say, hey, he's not here. And the disciples, with the exception of Peter that are there, believe it's just idle gossip and idle talk. Jesus predicted his death and the resurrection multiple times. He says it explicitly, and he says it allegorically. Like, he gives the example of the temple's going to be torn down, and three days later it's going, to rise, it's going to be raised back up. And people are confused by that because the temple was this massive structure that mattered to them, that's no longer there. But you can still go to the one wall that remains in Israel, It's called the Wailing Wall, and people still go to the one wall they have, and they write their prayers on slips of paper and stuff them in the cracks. Because people want to be near to where the presence of God was, but what they don't understand is the presence of God is still with us and still here. The disciples doubted. A lot of people talk about Thomas doubting, but here we have a story of they all doubted. It wasn't just Thomas. Peter runs to the tomb to see for himself, and it's ironic that he's the one who runs because he's also the one that Jesus says, you're going to deny me three times. And that's the one who wants to run because he doesn't want his last interaction with Jesus to be where he tells him, I'm going to deny you, and then only to be proven true. And I don't know exactly the thought process that Peter goes through. But what I know is this. Many times in our life, we're the ones who are denying him. And we wish that weren't true. And so we have this moment. Some of us in our lives have this moment where we realize, I'm a sinner and I can go back and I can be redeemed. I can be reconnected to God, but I'm not worthy. And Peter's in the same place. He recognizes he does not want his last interaction to be one where he said, I would die for you, Jesus. And then he tries to fight a guy in the garden, cuts off his ear, only to give Jesus more work because Jesus has to heal the guy. Thanks a lot, Peter. And then he runs to the tomb and he gets down and he sees the clothes. But we also know if you continue reading the text, he doesn't really fully understand what it means. 
So why should I believe any of this story? It's the question people ask. Well, it's okay to ask that question, but I'm going to say I, th- I think it's the wrong question to ask. There'll always be a reason to doubt. Faith is not built on what I've seen, but faith can be built on my experience. If I'm looking to my faith to be based on only what I've seen and experienced, I'm always going to be just wishing there was something more. If you must see, you're going to be left questioning everything. But it doesn't mean you're alone. Thomas says, until I see with my eyes and touch with my hands, I'm not going to believe. And this is a guy who walked with him for three years. So doubt is real. There's going to be times in our life when we're in such crisis that we doubt the existence of God. When we're so lonely, we're so desperate, we're so in need of something, we're going to be doubting the actuality that God's there in this moment. And yet you're not alone in that doubt. It doesn't make you a bad person. But you can't sit there and stay there and give up because you doubt either. You can't say, well, it must not be because I'm not seeing him today. People are still looking to see God, to see Jesus. I'll believe if this happens. That's the same thing of saying, if only I could see. And yet he says, faith by its very essence, is belief in what I cannot see, belief in what I cannot prove, belief in what I want to be and I know to be, but I don't know how I know. I know this to be true, but I don't know how I know. That's the very essence of faith. And for faith to be alive, for faith to be real, for faith to be walked out, We have to know that there's going to be times when it's so difficult. There's going to be times that try us and push us, and we're going to wonder, God, do you really exist? And yet, I can go back to the fact that even the disciples, they walked with him on earth. Even they question. Even they wonder. Even they doubt. I'm here today to tell you Your faith is not lost because you doubt. Your faith is lost because you quit questioning. You quit pursuing. You quit chasing. That's when faith gets lost. When you decide, nope, I only believe in a different theory or a different point of view outside of God. We were created to worship. The difficult thing is that God is often not a tangible item because we can't touch him. We want something we can see. We worship things, whether you realize it or not, that we have control over. Because in reality, we don't want to really give ourselves up to God. We want to worship something that I control. People are still trying to control God. There's entire websites dedicated to telling you how to pray. If you'll pray this way, then God has to do what you want. Really? Because at what point then does that cease to be God and me just ceasing to get my way? I don't know if you've ever dealt with toddlers. I had two of them in my life. Sometimes 
my wife probably still thinks I act like one. Um, but the beauty of toddlers is they want their way. But the other nice thing is you can pick them up and move them to where you need them to go. I've told you many times, my daughter was so strong-willed, she would lock her body in rigidly, and she also weighed about 20 pounds. When she was going into kindergarten, I think she was like 23 pounds. This is where you're going to go. I remember trying to put her in her car seat, and she was just super stiff. I tickled her finally, she buckled, and I strapped her in quick. (laughs) You will not win. We do the same thing with God all the time. We decide, you're going to do it my way. And we stand there, you're going to do it my way. And we are firm in our resolution. And God's just looking and going, really, are we doing this again? We doing this again. Because I'm going to be God of the universe. I'm not just going to do what you tell me. And yet he also says, I want to have conversation with you. I want to have relationship with you. He invites us into that relationship. And so, in another way, he wants us to tell him what's going on in our heart, what's going on in our life, what do we need from him? How do we build that relationship with him? And so he's not a God who's not loving. He's a God that's so loving that he wants you to learn and to grow. Jesus did not need us to worship him. At no point does he say, you have to worship me. He invites us into relationship with him. That's a God that's not demanding. If I were the benevolent dictator of the world, I'd be benevolent, but believe me, you'd have to worship me. You'd have to know that I'm the one where all good things come from. I'll be kind and do good things, but you better listen to me. How many of you, if you were really honest, you don't have to raise your hand, but just think, if you were really in charge of the world, things would be a little different and people would be doing things your way because you know the right way. Oh good, some of you are actually bold enough to raise your hands. Ever see the stupid drivers around you and think, oh, I should teach you how to drive? <laughs> Ever had a coworker who just doesn't quite get it? And if they would listen to me, oh, this place, or a boss who has no idea what they're really doing and really only got there because they go to lunch with the other boss? Yeah, because we know how to do things right. We serve a God who looks and says, I know how to do things right, and you're invited to partake with me. We have this idea of a God who wants to, who's waiting for us to screw up and wants to punish us, but that's not really the God that we see in Scripture. The God we see in Scripture looks and says, let's be in relationship together. Here's my son as a sacrifice so that you can have relationship with me. This is the Jesus that I worship. One that invites but doesn't manipulate. One that lays down his life and yet doesn't ask me, doesn't make me give him anything. One that loves me so deeply, he wants to see me made whole, but he also allows me to continue to sin if I choose to. And he allows me to progress in my faith at my pace, not at somebody else's unrealistic expectation. The relationship that I have with God is this. Through his son, I have hope. And outside of that, all I have is judgment and pain. And I say that I want that, and yet it's so hard to really live that out. And we've been invited over and over and over 
to come and live this out. And yet we question the way it's done and we question the manner in which it's done. And we even, we even question, well, should we be taking communion this way or that way? Should we be doing it this way or that? Should we be singing five worship songs? Why aren't we singing seven worship songs? We question everything about it. And he's saying, you're asking the wrong questions. The question is, does the person on the left and the person on the right, do they want to love me and worship me? Then why would you put up a wall to keep them away from that? Why do we let these petty differences and petty arguments get in the way of this meaningful relationship with the one true living God? But we do over and over and over. And he looks at us and he says, there's a better way. And the way is this. You accept my son Jesus into your life. I forgive you of your sins. And then there's hope for you tomorrow. But that takes putting aside our pride because that means I have to recognize I am a sinner and I can't do it on my own. And gee, none of us wants to do that. I want to rely on my good job and my pension and my ability to make money and my ability to have power and influence and control in this world because I can see that. That's tangible. And he's looking and saying, there's so much more for you. There's so much more for you. I've got a better plan for your life. But are you willing to step out in faith and accept that plan that I have for you today. Let's go ahead and pray. I just want to invite you, if maybe something I said today just sparked something in you. Maybe you've never accepted Jesus into your life and been reconciled to God. Maybe it's been years since you've done that. And I'll tell you right now, following Jesus is not easy, but it is very simple. And here's the difference. Easy means there's no challenges. Simple just means I understand what I'm saying. Jesus looks at you. He loves you enough to sacrifice himself. And if that's something that you want in your life, maybe you've never done it, maybe it's been years since you've done it, maybe you've walked away just because life got hard or life got busy, I want to invite you today to just say, you know what, I want to make Jesus really king in my life. If that's you, just raise your hand just so I can pray with you. All right. Father God, I see you today and I recognize there were several people in this room today who just said they need you, Jesus. I'm not normally a let's pray together, but if you guys could just, everybody in here, just pray with me today. Father God, I see that I'm a sinner. And I need your son, Jesus, to forgive me of my sins. Bring me into relationship. Help me to know you. Teach me to love you. And show me how to change. To be who you created me to be. Amen. If that was you today, I know there were about seven hands that went up. If you want to talk more about that, I invite you. Uh, My card is on the information counter in the back. You can email me. You can email the church office, and they'll give me that email. We can grab breakfast or lunch or dinner. We can grab a cup of coffee in the middle of the morning. I'll work around your schedule. 
If you want to talk more about that with me, let me know. I invite you to do that. I invite all of you back. We do meet each and every week, for those of you who didn't know that. We're here every week. Um, that's, that wasn't meant to be a dig. It was meant to be a joke. So if that offended you, I will personally apologize. Every week at 10, we'd love to have you here. We'd love to have you be a part. We have some small groups if you're looking for a smaller group to connect with. And we have some different things that we do to try to reach and love our community. And we want to invite you to be a part of those if that's something that you're looking, you know, maybe you go, oh, I'd love to get my neighborhood to know more about who Jesus is. Come out and be a part of those. Um, I want to invite you to stay today if you can at all. Grab a cup of coffee. They have a lot of great snacks out there. We'd love to serve you some food and just have you talk with people, build relationship with people because knowing God comes inside of a community. So if that's you today, anything that I just touched on, let me know. And if not, tell me what you need so I can give it to you. Love you. See you next week.